Welcome to the 373rd episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Thank you for listening. Well, here we are, January 14th, and I've run every day in January. I've actually run every day since December 30th, but I'm going to start my streak January the 1st. I've had running streaks in the past, and I've just got tired or something's happened, so they haven't really lasted that long without a break, but I'm going to see if I can maintain a running streak of at least a couple miles every day, um, at least through, um, let's, let's see if we can make it through February. We'll see. I don't know. Our 50-mile race is February the 13th. I'm not sure how I'm going to feel after a 50-miler, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I've always also changed my running a little bit. Um, I was doing a run-walk method, 2.30 run, 30-second or 15-second walk. I've decided to get rid of those. Um, the reality of it is when you're running a trail race, you really can't um, run-walk because there are places where you need to walk. Uh, the train is bad um, when it's not your time and places where you need to run when you should be um, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a walk session, but you should be running to make up time for the time you couldn't run, if that makes any sense. So I've ditched those. Um, it was interesting. I noticed a decrease in my fitness by doing the run-walk method. Uh, you get kind of used to those walk breaks. The good thing about walk breaks is that it stretches your legs out, and you're using different muscles, and it lets your heart rate come down. Um, the bad thing in training is that those long, steady runs, um, I, I just don't think you get quite as much out of them when your heart rate is um, low and then lower and low then lower. So perhaps uh, intervals with high intensity um, would be better than just uh, your regular runs with uh, you know run-walk session. I don't know, but I've started running all the time except when Sophie and I have to stop for a car or whatever happens in our in our road, typically in the morning. There's some construction in my neighborhood, so we have to dodge a few trucks. And so we have a couple little walk breaks, but for the most part, I've been running the runs um, straight through and feel pretty good. Uh, I actually like it. So um, that's, that's where we are. Again, the 50-milers coming up the second week in February in Texas. That's going to be a trail race. I'm still oscillating between my shoes, ultra temps, ultra lone peaks, and I just got a pair of Newton trail shoes, so I'm anxious to try those. Um, something about the Newtons I just really like. Um, they're more of a minimal shoe, a little hard, more responsive, so it uh, really comes down to my favorite shoes being either the lone peak, which are a little bit more firm, or the, the Newtons. We'll see. So that's... Um, that's really uh, where we are in the endurance. I'm trying to do um, put my strength training back in to that. Um, Addie has us all doing in a practice a lunge challenge this month, but I'm trying to do some uh, deadlifts and squats as well. As far as some upper, upper body, I've decided that since I have German Shepherd dogs, I need to be able to keep my strength up to lift my German Shepherd dogs. So I have two right now. Sophie's a puppy, and she is approaching the high 70s, and Gretchen is 8, and she's approaching the 80s. So I want to be able to cart my German Shepherds if need be. So I think it's really important that I, I keep the strength work up, and that's what I'm using as my motivation. 
Strength work is great for runners that are doing trails and hills and just as injury prevention. But I need an extra, I need an extra motivator. So I'm going to use the German Shepherds as my motivator, and I'm going to test periodically, seeing how well I can lift the girls up and see how I do. So that's, that's my plan here for um, the first month of 2022 is to maintain strength and improve it so that I can hoist my German Shepherds if need be. Hopefully my German Shepherds won't have to hoist me on any of the runs. So getting to a medical aspect of things, there's been several studies reported, and, and I hope this doesn't turn out to be too much of a negative podcast. Maybe I should, there will be, stay tuned, there'll be some positive things come along. Um, but the first one deals in a study that uh, I'm sure a lot of people will hang on to uh, quite heavily, in that olive oil consumption may capitalize all those letters, M-A-Y, cut risk for cardiovascular, cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. So they did one half tablespoon of olive oil daily, may cut cardiovascular mortality and all-cause mortality by 19% as publicized in the American Journal of Cardiology. Um, that is really when you look at it, um, you know, replacing other um, ingredients, margarine, mayo, butter, dairy, um, so they did an assessment looking at nurses' health in the health professional follow-up. So they did a questionnaire every four years. I'm not sure how that works out with people for a four-year um, study where you can commit to saying you only used a tablespoon or how much olive oil you used. I, I think that's flawed. But they, they compared less than a teaspoon, a teaspoon to a half a tablespoon, and a half a tablespoon um, to people that didn't uh, intake the oil. So there were 60,582 people. They followed them for 28 years. During that time, 36,856 people died. Higher olive oil was associated with, again, a 19% risk reduction in cardiovascular mortality, a 17% reduction in cancer mortality, a 29% reduction in neurodegenerative disease, and an 18% uh, decrease in respiratory mortality. No association was noted comparing olive oil to other vegetable oils. And they didn't really look into that. So let's break this down a little bit. Uh, first of all, the nurse's health study, anybody that participates in the nurse's health study or the health professionals follow-up, they're typically healthy people, higher education, higher economical, um, economic um, levels, so they're more, you know, and they're more educated. Um, so you get a healthy group of people. Um, and we're, when we're looking, you know, is this better than mayo, butter, or other forms of, of oil? There's no way in the world um, that people just use a half a tablespoon of olive oil a day. You know, that is, uh, has to be in addition to, most people don't realize that pasta sauce could be 30% oil, a combination of olive oil and vegetable oils. Um, most purchase sauces. Some dr salad dressings can be um, over 50% oil. Um, anything that's breaded, oil, you know, so it's everywhere. Take out Chinese food, take, you know, so there's oil everywhere. Um, so it's, it's, it's really difficult to do a questionnaire and get people's intake that's any accurate at all, let alone trying to boil it down to olive oil. 
um, that much. You know, I would, I would probably say that if you looked at the people, healthier people did better than unhealthier people in general. But this in general, to a couple papers that I'll uh, talk about, you know, it's, we tend to look at the conclusions and not the guts of the study, the methods and the population and how many people. And most people aren't trained in scientific methods as far as how many people it takes to prove that your hypothesis is correct, um, the statistics associated with it, whether it's a questionnaire. Um, so it, it gets really muddy very quick. But, you know, especially when we can come up with a conclusion that um, it supports what we want to hear, that olive oil is probably pretty good for us. And my fear is that people say, oh, well, a little olive oil is good. Um, it's a health food. I should do more olive oil. And, you know, that leads to olive oil on everything, olive oil dip, olive oil this, olive oil that, oil this, oil that. Uh, in the reality, in the practical world, it doesn't translate into any benefits whatsoever. Nobody compared olive oil to no oil. Um, and that's something that most people don't want to talk about. You know, that seems to be the um, big dividing point when, you know, between cheese and oil. Um, you mean you're not going to use any oil to cook with? You're not going to use anything that has oil in it? That, that seems to be a deal breaker for a lot of people. So I doubt that, you know, that's one reason not to do the study because nobody really wants to know that the olive oil is not really doing that much. The other thing I look at is calories and energy intake. Um, when you talk about weight loss, it's about energy. Uh, when you talk about nutrition, it's a health benefit. So that crosses over. But again, we have so many calories to spend each day. And if you're spending them on olive oil, uh, is that actually improving our nutrition um, more so, say, than increasing our fruits and vegetable consumption? And I don't think anybody would argue that if you had 100 extra calories, 140 extra calories to spend, which would be a tablespoon of olive oil, you would have much more health benefit doing 140 calories of fruits and vegetables as opposed to olive oil. But again, we like to hear what we like to hear. There was another study that was published looking at vitamin D. And they looked at uh, Finnish, this was a Finnish study, and they had 2,495 people. Um, average age was 68 uh, years of age, uh, about 43% were women. They looked uh, and they actually randomized people to 1,600 international units, 3,200 international units, or no vitamin D supplementation. And they looked to see whether there were more deaths, heart attacks, strokes, um, or overall deaths in the population. And what they found was there wasn't much difference, 4 to 4.9 4 to 5% across the board. Um, and so you say, well, this is a negative study. Um, vitamin D supplementation doesn't, doesn't make any difference. The problem is it's a very small study, 2,495 people. Um, the other thing that's even wor more worrisome was there was only um, their, their average vitamin D level was 75 to start with. So most of the people had normal or even, you know, super therapeutic levels of vitamin D. And then we supplemented them to go up to the, you know, into the 100 range. So we're taking people that are healthy and have normal vitamin D levels and giving them more and saying, well, it doesn't make any difference uh, when you look at that. And again, the study was designed to fail 
Um, we, it would have been better to say, okay, people with a vitamin D level of 20 versus the people that we give, um, no, and we won't give them any versus the people that we give enough vitamin D to say get their level over 50. Does that make a difference? That would have been a little bit more interesting to me um, and, to, and to look at the, uh, the results there. It was a little bit interesting that people's vitamin D level were in the 70s uh, from Finland. Uh, I would expect their vitamin D levels not to be that high to start with, so it makes me think that it was somewhat of a cherry-picked population that, again, very healthy people uh, tend to be outside, outdoors, uh, getting adequate vitamin D levels and probably, again, baseline healthy. So that study, again, uh, just kind of goes to show that um, everything is not as it seemed. The study that bothered me the most this week was a study in the Journal of Clinical Investigation that looked at ACE inhibitors and um, ARBs, which is um, angiotensin-converting enzyme or angiotensin receptor blocker medications, uh, and found that they are now thought to cause hardening of the kidney uh, blood vessels. And there was actually a genetic alteration in the renin-producing cells. So if we break that down a little bit for those of you that aren't involved in treating people with hypertension or kidney disease, um, and this was a study out of the University of Virginia. So it was a very in-depth study looking at the genetic uh, change in the renin cells. ACE inhibitors and ARBs um, are mainstay drugs in the toolbox of internists, endocrinologists, and cardiologists. We give them to people with diabetes to protect their kidneys by dilating the blood vessels to the kidneys in hopes to decrease kidney damage. We give them to hypertensive patients because for the most part they have little side effect other than some people have a, a cough uh, with an ACE inhibitor and ARBs have less of a cough. It's an angiotensin bradykinin type of reaction, an allergic type reaction, so those people can't take them. Uh, but for the most part, it's a widely used bl uh, blood pressure medication, works very effectively, can typically be taken once or twice a day. Uh, again, if people have an allergy to the ACE, they can usually tolerate the ARB. We give them to heart failure patients to ease the work of the heart because if you dilate the arteries, it makes the heart easier. It makes it easier for the heart to pump against a low pressure vascular system. So we not only give them to heart failure patients, but we titrate those to levels that lower the blood pressure as much as we can without the person being dizzy. So that's been the standard of therapy over many years. And now after years and looking, um, there appears to be some endothelial damage or actually arterial muscle, small muscle cell damage in the arteries if these medications are used over time. And so that's, that's really worrisome because we don't have a whole lot of options otherwise. Um, calcium channel blockers have not provided the same effectiveness as far as protection or blood pressure uh, control in, in a lot of patients. Uh, again, you know, targeting the kidneys to protect them, what we thought was protecting the kidneys. Um, maybe this will lead to more studies looking at things like calcium channel blockers versus ACE inhibitors if just lowering the blood pressure makes a difference or perhaps all of these medications actually over time cause blood vessel damage. I've had people come into the office uh, in the past and say, you know, I was put on this medication, then this medication was changed because it was no longer working. And 
I got to tell you, I, I kind of poo-poo it. You know, it's like, yeah, it's not working. It's not working because your vascular disease is progressing. You're not doing the right thing. You know, I don't say all of those things in such a way, but now, you know, it makes me wonder, yeah, the um, certainly vascular disease is probably progressing, but is it because of some of the medications and not just uh, the disease process itself? Uh, it's a little bit concerning. Of course, what, you know, the question is, what do we do? Um, comes back to, you know, nutrition. Uh, we don't talk to people with kidney failure, diabetes, or heart failure near enough about salt intake, sodium intake, and oil intake, um, and endothelial dysfunction, and increasing their blood, their blood vessel dilatation with the greens in the, in the nitric oxide production. We don't talk to people and near enough of that. Most doctors, I don't believe, know much about nitric oxide um, as far as as a part of nutrition. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, you have to realize that you can eat all the greens you want, but if you have a sirloin steak chaser uh, or you eat some oil on the other side, you can block and have oxidative stress. You can block the production of the nitric oxide so it's not all, you know, eat your spinach but cream it and, you know, and have a steak with it. That doesn't work. Um, it's a short-acting drug, so it has to be delivered. Um, those greens have to be delivered multiple times throughout the day, again, in the absence of other things. So you don't want your olive oil soaked in, or I'm sorry, you don't want your kale necessarily soaked in olive oil to get the nitric oxide benefit. Funny thing that's happened to me recently, and I don't know if it has anything to do with COVID or, um, you know, my vaccine status, but my local hospital um, you know, wanted to know why uh, I don't seem to have very many admissions, and uh, they questioned what was going on a little bit because my admissions were down to the hospital. They have been over the last five years, not really much more than this year, but and maybe even less because there have been some COVID patients. But um, one of the reasons why I don't have very many hospitalizations for heart failure is that we take care of them as an outpatient. Uh, we educate them on um, eating their greens and their sodium intake and manage them very closely. And because I have a small practice, we can see them very frequently and monitor them. They know to weigh themselves on a daily basis. If their weight is up, that's a reflection of sodium intake, and we talk to them right away and get things under control so they don't actually have to go to the hospital. Um, in the old days, you know, when I worked into practice, people's patients were coming in all the time because they would get into salt, typically, you know, over the holidays, it was even worse, but uh, people would do their canned soups. They, they go into heart failure. They come in. They uh, have to be given diuretics intravenously. Their weight would go down. The water would go down. Their, their heart failure would uh, clear, and then they go back to their old ways of, of living. So um, there, you know, there certainly is a, a very large avenue to manage hypertension and heart failure, uh, and the secondary side effects with diabetes with nutrition. We manage people's salt intake, again, uh, and we make sure they get their nitric oxide producing vegetables, and that will go a very long way to protecting their kidneys and easing the work of the heart. Not to mention um, that as we take, you know, the, the things that are causing the problems and we actually reverse the diabetes by taking the fat out of their diet, things get much better. It's amazing if you let the body heal itself, give it a little opportunity, uh, you, can make a, you can make a lot of progress. The other thing that I thought was um, disheartening in the study with the ACE inhibitors and the ARB is they said, you know, as part of the study, well, don't stop these medications. Make sure you talk to your doctor. 
And, you know, I sh I'm sure there's going to be poo-pooed and, and um, you know, people are just going to gloss over that and not really look into what do we actually do with this because standard protocols, there's so many people that follow just a map of what you do, no thinking involved, that uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really put a wrench in things if they actually have to think about what to do to treat somebody's blood pressure. Telling them to exercise and eat healthy is not going to fix it. I've been kind of taking a deep dive into the polio vaccine because that's the vaccine that we really um, look at between smallpox and polio. We look to and say that vaccines saved the day. And, you know, it's, it's kind of how the story's told. You know, the hero is, is you know, it's, again, how the, how the story's actually told. And if you read uh, a re reference to the book, again, I have before, the um, Dissolving Illusion, Suzanne Humphreys, who's a nephrologist, uh, and the vaccine and the virus is the other book that I've been looking at the polio that looks at the polio virus and the polio vaccine. Debbie Brookchain and Jim Schumacher are the names, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But Dr. Salk um, wrote about native Brazilian Indians back in the 50s when they looked at that group versus the Brazilians that lived in towns or whatever. The native Brazilian Indians almost all had antibodies to all three strains of the polio virus, but there was no paralysis and no paralysis syndrome. And even he noted that people with excellent innate immune function seem to be okay with the polio virus. Um, it was a virus that had been around for years and years and years. It kind of reared its ugly head in the 50s. We also changed the diagnosis of it. Um, there was no way of looking at was some of the paralytic diseases secondary to polio or other viruses, so they were kind of all lumped together back in the 50s. It wasn't until the mid-60s that different viruses could be teased out. There was also an association of DDT because it was thought that bugs and flies... Uh, helped transmit the polio virus, so a lot of DDT was sprayed, and it was also noted by these investigators that the DDT helped the polio virus enter the cells and replicate, so it actually made things worse. So, you know, it's not all as though it seems. Um, up until the 2000s, uh, there was still oral um, polio vaccine that was contaminated with live virus that about eight to ten cases of polio would occur each year. Even though we have the PCR test and southern blot test that we use today to detect COVID, it's not been part of the surveillance to make sure that vaccines are not contaminated with viruses. The only thing that's done or required is to look under a light microscope. Certainly, there's not much policing in some of these vaccines, especially since 1986. They haven't had, they've been under the protection. You, they're not, they're not, uh, the companies aren't held liable. So there's not a lot of, um, you know, dedicated, there's not a lot of uh, people looking, uh, and there's not a lot of change going on. And, and so if those things happened back then, um, then it makes it a little bit worrisome, you know, uh, about what could, could happen now with some of these vaccines. And, and we know that, you know, as the vaccines roll out and they're used into more and more people, that, you know, there, there is definitely um, a need for discussion on who might be more susceptible to side effects, who might benefit, who's not going to benefit, who need not be vaccinated with it. 
And, you know, I think it comes down to, um, again, there's no one therapy that, that should be um, mandated for, for everybody. We need to have a, we need, to, if nothing else comes out of this COVID pandemic, I would love to see everybody come together and say, for whatever reason, we need to be able to have the right to choose what med- medical intervention um, we, are, we, under, we, we take for ourselves or we choose for our children. And we do that by being presented truth as far as the risks versus benefits, and then we can make a chance. Because a lot of people will, will see those, those risks versus benefits differently. If you look back at the DPT, um, tetanus, uh, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus vaccine, there was a preservative, thermosol, uh, was mercury-based, uh, known to cause brain, liver, kidney damage. You know, the, the debate goes on about autistic um, um, involvement. But in 1997, the FDA said that um, um, probably getting too much mercury in the first six months of uh, infant's life uh, and people were probably the six, uh, zero to six were getting more mercury than the EPA guidelines. And the FDA and CDC urged manufacturers to eliminate or reduce the mercury uh, in the vaccines. It wasn't until 2001 that the FDA licensed the first thermosol free uh, DPT shot. So, you know, after knowing about it for years, it, you know, the machine, the big government machine takes a long time to turn. Still yet, uh, old stocks of thermosol DPT, was, were, they weren't recalled. Um, so it was up to a parent to ask for the new vaccine versus the old mercury containing, depending on, again, their level of decision making. So, uh, you know, it comes down to it. If you're expecting the government to take care of you, um, you're... you're you're, you're going to be in trouble. You're incorrect. Um, I listened to um, Center of the Universe podcast by uh, Ashland Dave, and he's a policeman, and he talks about, you know, there was recently people stuck on I-95 with a snowstorm, and people were yelling that the National Guards weren't deployed and there weren't enough policemen. And as a former policeman, he talked about the number of policemen that are actually actively on duty at any one time. And you know, what it takes to get the National Guard. National Guard are people that have other daily jobs and lives. They do this on a part-time basis. So it's, it's not like a few policemen and a National Guard were able to come immediately to these people's rescue. And he talked about how people need to be prepared. You know, if you're in the, in, down here in the summer, um, you have a hurricane prepared kit. Uh, you have batteries and water and uh, generators because our power can go out if we were in a hurricane and if you're in a low-lying area you need to evacuate same thing for up north you know people need to be prepared in case their electric goes out if you have a fireplace or you have a generator or so forth that we need to be able to take care of ourselves and I think for some reason um, you know a lot of people have thought that the medical uh, industrial complex is going to take care of us, and that nothing that nothing would be we would never be exposed to anything that was not harmful. I've been a physician for a lot of years since I've been in since I've been a physician. ACE inhibitors have been you know uh, prescribed just like I talked about, and now here, 25 years into it, we're starting to say, well, this these things might not be good. Um, you know, again, my practice I changed four or five years ago. To, a, to try to get people off medications through intervention, uh, through, through lifestyle interventions, nutrition, exercise. 
and I've seen a better outcome than all the years that I practiced standard medicine. And it's very, very frustrating. I've defended the medical establishment to death over the years um, because I, I, I became a physician to help people and to not do harm. And I was taught things by people that appear to be well-meaning, um, you know, presented to me. And I never took a drug company's word for anything. I always looked at the study as much as I possibly could. But there's only so much data that we're given. Um, it's, you know, when new drugs come out and new therapies come out, it's really, uh, they're tested. The phase one, two, and three trials are done on relatively few and then healthy people. And it's not until these drugs are, are out on the market do we actually see what happens in a cross-section of people. The drugs are never tested on people that, have, that are on multiple medications, that have multiple potential interactions, uh, because it's just too hard to do the test. So we don't see what happens until afterwards. So the reality of it is, and, and people come in, and there's no time for physicians to see people. They're seeing 40, 50 people a day. So it's all about just titrating and adjusting medication. So if the blood pressure's up, nobody asks. They just tight add on another medication. People can accumulate them. We know that 20 to 40% of people don't take medications as prescribed. Frankly, I don't know how people do. Just taking a vitamin regimen during COVID was very, very difficult, let alone if I had to take a medication that, that really altered my physio physiology. So... You know, it's clear, it becomes clear to me, maybe, I'm, you know, uh, that, that diet and exercise uh, is key into preserving health and that when we prescribe these medications that we all take for granted will be a medication for life, we really should start looking at these medications on temporary. How, how short of a period of time can we give these people medications so we can adjust their risk factors, their, their lifestyle, their nutrition, their exercise, so we can get them off of the medications. Not just, you know, we're going to keep adding on and assume people are keep doing what they're doing and we just keep, you know, dragging them along sicker and sicker and that's what everybody expects and everybody's okay, you know. You hear people say, it's not easy getting old, it's you've got to have guts to get old or you know, when, can, when was the last time you could do something? You know, when was the last time you walked a mile? When's the last time you ran a mile? When's the last time you did a split? When's the last time you got off the ground? It just, someday you wake up and, and people can't do it. And, and everybody just assumes that's a natural part of aging. It's a natural part of aging to take blood pressure medicine, to take diabetic medication, to take cholesterol medication. You can compare them while you're at the Outback eating a steak, you know, and having a big dessert. And... Um, that's considered a right, and we don't want to fat shame anybody if they're overweight, but the reality of it is we need to take care of ourselves, uh, and, you know, and, and we need to do it, um, and, and we need to, um, as a physician group, take, take back control over educating people on the true risk versus benefit. When I first became a physician, it talked about informed consent, and it was so important to make sure before you did a procedure on a person or a test on a person or some, you know, medication, they knew the risk versus the benefit, and then they could make the decision. In the old days, you know, doctors were more of the paternalistic. This is what you need. This is what you should do. And a lot of people still listen to their doctor because they think that they have their best interests in mind. And maybe they do, but maybe they're also so busy that they have their own interest in mind. I'm just trying to get through the day. I'm just trying to make payroll. Uh, I'm just trying to, you know, get through whatever because I think medicine is so different from, from you know, perhaps what, when 
you know, we all went to medical school and what we thought it would be like. So, um, you know, you, you deserve time. You deserve time with your physician, and you deserve to have the risk versus benefit explained to you, and you deserve as a human to be able to make decisions for yourself and for those children that you care about. It shouldn't be made for you. And I think that's a right that everybody should fight to preserve, the right to make your own decision after informed consent. You may not always make the right decision, but at least you made a decision. You know, my parents were in business, and they had to make a lot of decisions, and they would always say, you make a decision to the best of your ability based on the facts, and then you deal with it afterwards. If you've done that, then there's no regrets. I wish I would have done this, or I wish I wouldn't have done that. There's no regrets. You've, you've researched the data, you know the risk and benefits, and you make a decision best for you, and then you're okay with it. But you can't have something imposed upon you because that's when people have regrets and that's when, when things start to get really messy. You know, I heard this week somebody say, I really like cheese, you know, and my husband really likes meat and potatoes. And I'm sure they do. Uh, you know, a lot of people really like cheese and a lot of people really like meat. Um, not too many people are completely opposed to fruits and vegetables. They just want to have the other things. But when they realize there's some alternatives that are actually very good and the end result is that you feel good and you have more energy and you have to take less medications, then suddenly that changes. But if, if it's presented to you in such a way that, well, you should eat healthy and exercise, it may or may not help you, but you should do it because it's the right thing to do. Not too many people are going to buy that. Um, we made a great broccoli salad today. Um, you know, people say they don't have time to cook, so we did a salad. We used broccoli and carrots that, were that we bought in a bag that were shredded organic. Um, and we made a dressing with lemon and lime, uh, some hemp seed, some cayenne pepper, some dulse flakes. Dulse flakes are seaweed. They add a little iodine to your diet. Cayenne add a little heat. The lemon and lime, vitamin C, antioxidants, the broccoli, nitric oxide, vitamin C, anti-cancer pro properties. I mean, it was a great salad. If you wanted to, you could add some beans to that. Uh, chickpeas would be good, uh, but you don't have to. You could add some raisins to it if you want it to be a little bit more sweet or some grapes. Um, but it was a great salad. And the thing that I liked about it was that, um, you know, the broccoli slaw is kind of hearty enough that it'll hold up for a day or so in the refrigerator. We then took nori sheets, which uh, are the sushi sheets, and did the um, square fold with those to make like a little sandwich. So you cut up um, one quarter and then you fold over. You can, on Instagram, there's plenty of people um, demonstrating that technique. But it really packs good into a baggie. I've taken those kind of um, nori wraps on the air to the airport. Much easier to eat than sushi. You don't get the rice all over your fingers because you're just holding the nori wrap, but you can do it with rice paper. You could do it with the pita bread. So there's all kinds of different creative ways that you can make things that taste good, that are healthy, that benefit you, that are low in sodium so that you can get off of these blood pressure medicines. You can get rid of the oil. You can get the weight down so you don't have to take the medications, but you're not giving up taste. You're not in dietary... Um, prison that nothing is ever going to taste good again. 
So, um, you know, open yourself up to taking control of your, your nutrition and your health and your exercise. Uh, push yourself to some, some new limits. If you want to um, look and see what we do at our practice, uh, building a community of like-minded individuals that want to be healthy and get off medication, um, normalize their body weight, decrease their inflammation, improve their immune function. It's drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com. You can email me at jamie at drdelaney.com. If you're not sure and you want to call and talk to us, you can call the office. The number's on our website. Uh, we can make an, um, an appointment just to talk on the phone to see if the practice might be right for you. We have online memberships that just involve education. Uh, with a phone call a month, either from me and Addie or just Addie. Um, we have a uh, large website full of members-only educational material that you can look at. We do our new nutrition classes on Zoom on Monday and then record those for our members. I teach two nutrition classes a week. If you'd like to join me running, you still have time to sign up for the Treasure Coast Marathon in March. Uh, you can go to the Treasure Coast Marathon in Stewart, Florida website. I'll put a link to that and sign up for that race. I'm not sponsored by them. We just have a lot of our members that are doing that race, and I'll be there. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. You're never too old to start running. As a matter of fact, you're too old not to run. Um, but you got to do it in a smart manner. So we'd love to help you in any way we can. You're never too old to strength training. You're too old not to strength train. We can help you with that. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, I don't want to be offensive and I don't want to be negative. I think that there is a tremendous amount of hope that people can take their own health back. You know, the healthiest people that you know are the 80-plus-year-old people that don't go to the doctor. That's what it's all about, to not take medicine, not go to the doctor, be active, be one of the blue zoners. That doesn't happen going to the doctor every month. That happens by eating right and exercising. So do that. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.